When we turn to the Old Testament, we find it has a lot to teach us. There are lots of examples there for us to follow, and there are just as many examples for us not to follow. As we read the Old Testament, we realize human nature has not changed since Genesis chapter 3, since sin came into the world. We look at Old Testament people and we see ourselves. We see dangers and pitfalls we still need to watch out for today. And when we read the Old Testament, we realize God has not changed. His character and power are the same today as they were in Abraham's day and Moses' day and David's day. The Old Testament has a lot to teach us. But sometimes we come to a passage in the Old Testament and all we can say is, thank you, Lord, that I live in New Testament times. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus has come. Thank you for the changes Jesus has brought. Thank you, Lord, that things are not like they were in the Old Testament. And this morning, we come to one of those passages. This is a passage that shows us the way things used to be. Turn with me in your Bible, if you have one, to 2 Samuel chapter 21. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 327, and in the large print, 503. And just to remind us where we are in the book, chapter 20, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, that chapter concluded the account of David's restoration. After his sin with Bathsheba, which was recorded in chapter 11, David's family and the whole nation had descended into chaos. The climax of that chaos was the rebellion of David's son Absalom. That was followed by a less significant rebellion led by Sheba, son of Bichri. But chapter 20 ended with David restored to the throne in Jerusalem, ruling once again over all Israel. And so then, what about chapters 21 to 24? What about the rest of the book? What do we find in these chapters? Well, these final chapters bring together a selection of events and information and reflections. They're drawn from various points in David's reign. There's no indication these things happened after the events of chapter 20. Instead, the contents of these chapters have been carefully selected to form an epilogue to the book. Chapters 21 to 24 highlight certain things about David's reign. They give us an overall picture of David's kingdom. And this epilogue begins in chapter 21. We're going to read this chapter. We'll try to understand it. And then we'll see why through God's goodness, things are not like this in Jesus' kingdom. Chapter 21, verse 1. During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord. The Lord said, it is on account of Saul 
and his blood-stained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. The king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not a part of Israel, but were survivors of the Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to spare them. But Saul, in his zeal for Israel and Judah, had tried to annihilate them. David asked the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? The Gibeonites answered him, We have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor do we have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. What do you want me to do for you? David asked. They answered the king, As for the man who destroyed us and plotted against us, so that we have been decimated and have no place anywhere in Israel, let seven of his male descendants be given to us to be killed and their bodies exposed before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the Lord's chosen one. So the king said, I will give them to you. The king spared Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul. Because of the oath before the Lord between David and Jonathan, son of Saul. But the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Aya's daughter Rizpah, whom she had borne to Saul, together with the five sons of Saul's daughter Merab, whom she had borne to Adriel, son of Barzillai, the Maholothite. He handed them over to the Gibeonites, who killed them and exposed their bodies on a hill before the Lord. All seven of them fell together. They were put to death during the first days of harvest, just as the barley harvest was beginning. Rizpah, daughter of Ayah, took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on a rock. From the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heavens on the bodies, she did not let the birds touch them by day or the wild animals by night. When David was told what Aya's daughter Rizpah, Saul's concubine, had done, he went and took the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the citizens of Jabesh-Gilead. They had stolen their bodies from the public square at Bethshan, where the Philistines had hung them after they struck Saul down at Gilboa. David brought the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from there. And the bones of those who had been killed and exposed were gathered up. They buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the tomb of Saul's father Kish at Zelah and Benjamin and did everything the king commanded. After that, God answered prayer on behalf of the land. Once again, there was a battle between the Philistines and Israel. David went down with his men to fight against the Philistines, and he became exhausted. And Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of Rapha, whose bronze spearhead weighed 300 shekels and who was armed with a new sword, said he would kill David. But Abishai, son of Zeruiah, came to David's rescue. He struck the Philistine down and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, saying, Never again! Will you go out with us to battle, so that the lamp of Israel will not be extinguished? In the course of time, there was another battle with the Philistines at Gob, 
At that time, Sebekah the Hushathite killed Saph, one of the descendants of Rapha. In another battle with the Philistines at Gob, Elhanan, son of Jair, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath the Gittite, who had a spear with a shaft like a weaver's rod. In still another battle, which took place at Gath, there was a huge man with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in all. He also was descended from Rapha. When he taunted Israel, Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, David's brother, killed him. These four were descendants of Rapha and Gath, and they fell at the hands of David and his men. This is God's word. And it begins with the problem of God's wrath. David reigned as king for 40 years. First of all, seven years over just Judah, then 33 years over all Israel. And at some point during his reign, there was a famine. Now, a poor harvest was not unusual in Israel, but three in a row was unusual. And it was devastating. So here in chapter one, we've landed in a situation where people are dying of starvation. And as Israel's king, David does what he should do. Verse 1 says he sought the face of the Lord. He goes to the one who controls the earth and the skies. And God gives David a clear answer. We're not told how exactly God gives his answer to David. But the answer is clear in verse 1. The Lord said, It is on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. In other words, God says, I have sent this famine, David. And I have sent it because of Saul's sin. A very specific sin against the Gibeonites. So right at the start, we are left in no doubt. This famine is not an accident. It's an expression of God's wrath against sin. Saul was king of Israel before David. And sometime during Saul's reign, he attacked the Gibeonites. In fact, verse 2 says, he tried to annihilate them. So it wasn't just a little event. He tried to wipe these people off the map. Just for a moment, imagine the horror of that. We've just seen the horrors of starvation in Israel. And in the midst of that, God says to David, this is happening because of earlier horrors inflicted by Saul. So we're beginning to build up a picture. And verse 2 gives us more important detail. It tells us the Gibeonites were not part of Israel. They were survivors of the Amorites. Amorites is being used here as a name for the Canaanites. They were people who lived in the land of Israel before the Israelites came along. Centuries before David, God had said, I'm going to bring judgment on the Canaanites because of their great wickedness. I'm going to give their land to the Israelites. 
Joshua was the commander of Israel who led the people into Canaan. The Gibeonites were among those Canaanites. But they tricked Joshua and the leaders of Israel. They pretended to come from some place far away outside of Canaan. And they managed to convince the Israelites to make a peace treaty with them. So it was a deception by the Gibeonites. But here's the significant part for what's going on in 2 Samuel. When the leaders of Israel found out it was a trick, they didn't turn on the Gibeonites. The Israelite people wanted to do that. But we're told this when the people came to the leaders. All the leaders answered, We have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. This is what we will do for them. We will let them live so that wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. So whatever wrong the Gibeonites might have done, the key issue is our oath. We gave it to them in the Lord's name. If we break it, his wrath will fall on us. The leaders of Israel knew faithfulness to the Lord trumps everything else in that situation. Now, fast forward from there about 400 years to Saul's reign. At some point, Saul gets a bee in his bonnet about what the Gibeonites did. And he decides, actually, what matters most is not faithfulness to the Lord. What matters is settling old scores. Verse 2 says, Saul, in his zeal for Israel and Judah, tried to annihilate the Gibeonites. But Saul showed no zeal for the Lord's name. Israel had sworn an oath by the Lord, the God of Israel. Breaking that oath was saying the Lord's name means nothing. It can't be depended on. That's why breaking the oath brings God's wrath. And we might say, well, that's hardly fair. Why is Israel being punished for what Saul did? Well, it was certainly Saul's idea, but he didn't carry it out all by himself. He couldn't have done it without Israel's help. Israel as a nation did this. And Israel as a nation has never put this right. Even though they all know about it, And they've had years to do something about it. Israel as a nation bears the guilt for this. And Israel as a nation is suffering God's wrath. I said at the beginning, this is one of those passages that we read and say, thank you, Lord, that things have changed. And we will get to that stage. But for now, we have to realize this part of things has not changed at all. 3,000 years ago in Israel, people's greatest problem was God's wrath. And that has not changed in 2016. Our greatest problem is not the economy. It's not the way the government might handle the economy. 
Our greatest problem is not what happens or what might happen in the European referendum. It's not that health issue the doctor can't sort out for you. It's not your rotten neighbor or your nasty colleague at work. It's not the fact that you don't have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Those are all significant things to one degree or another. But none of those is our greatest problem. According to the Bible, our greatest problem is God. God as he stands against us in his wrath because of our sin. We've all acted like his name and honor mean nothing. We've all failed to be faithful to him. And God is not neutral about that. He's not chilled about that. According to the Bible, God is angry about it. And that anger is entirely appropriate. God deserves our worship and honor. It's part of the order of the universe. And because he is holy, he may not simply ignore our rebellion against him and our worship of other things and our lives that just disregard him. God is right to be wrathful about our unfaithfulness. And so you and I don't even know what a problem is until we have grasped the problem of God and his wrath. Here, during this famine, Old Testament Israel is getting a little sample of God's wrath. But the New Testament tells us about the undiluted wrath of God. And those are passages we can hardly manage to read. They are so terrible in what they describe. The problem of God's wrath is as relevant today as it was back in Israel. That much has not changed. But now we come to the bit that has changed. David here is faced with a terrible problem. And the best he can manage is an ugly, unsatisfactory solution. Faced with God's wrath, David calls in the Gibeonites. We know Saul tried to annihilate these people. We don't know how close he got to doing that. But there are at least some of them left. David calls them together. He explains the situation. And then he says in verse 3, What shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? David says, how can I put things right? So God's wrath will be turned away from us. He's not really asking, can you tell me what God wants? His question is, what do you want? If I satisfy you, that may satisfy God. The Gibeonites say, well... For us, it's not a question of payment in silver or gold. There needs to be a payment in life. Give us seven male descendants of Saul. Let us kill them 
and expose their bodies before the Lord at Gebeah, Saul's hometown. Why seven male descendants? Well, the intention seems to be these seven will stand for all Israel. They will be representatives. They will be substitutes who die instead of the whole nation. That's what the Gibeonites propose. And David agrees to it. He hands over two of Saul's sons. One of them is called Mephibosheth. But the writer is very careful to let us know this isn't the same Mephibosheth we've heard about earlier in the book. This is not the one David brought to the palace. Two of Saul's sons and five of his grandsons. They're probably all grown men at this stage. And verse 9 says, He handed them over to the Gibeonites, who killed them, and exposed their bodies on a hill before the Lord. The men are killed. How they're killed, we're not told. But then their bodies are impaled on stakes on a hilltop. They hang there before the Lord. And the idea is, maybe the death of these representatives will turn away God's wrath. Notice two things at this point. First of all, this was not something God told them to do. He told David what the problem was. He did not tell David what he was to do about the problem. And notice also we are not told what the Lord thinks of this solution. All we have is this horrible scene. Seven bodies hanging on a hilltop. Verse 9 says it happened at the time of the barley harvest. Meaning the time when barley was normally harvested. In this case, of course, there is no barley to be harvested. It's an ugly scene. And it gets worse. The next verses focus on a lady called Rizpah. She's the mother of two of the men on the hill. And we're told she camps out there. Day and night she guards those bodies keeping off the birds and the wild animals. She couldn't stop the killing, and she has neither the authority nor the physical ability to take down those bodies. But she guards them as they rot. We're not told how long she keeps this up. One writer says, however long it was, it must have been a pure hell for this woman. No rest, no escape from the sight and the smell of death. Eventually, David hears about her, and it moves David to action. He collects the bones of Saul and Jonathan. They died in battle years before this, but their bones had never been brought to their proper resting place. David also has the bones of the seven men gathered up. And he has them buried in the tomb of Saul's father. In other words, David makes an effort to honor the remains of these men. Rizpah has done that by guarding the bodies on the hill. 
Now David does it by giving them a dignified burial. And after that, look what we're told at the end of verse 14. After that, God answered prayer on behalf of the land. In other words, he ended the famine. So, we have to ask, did the seven deaths turn away God's wrath? Well, if that was the case, we would expect to read God answered prayer when he saw those bodies hanging on the hill. But as it is presented to us, God's response actually came much later, after the bodies were taken down and buried. So we're just not given enough information to spell out exactly what God thought of this. But it is significant, those bodies on the hill did not bring the end of the famine. The text seems to emphasize that for us. And we're left with a sense that what David did was totally inadequate to deal with the problem of God's wrath. The seven men didn't volunteer to die for the people. They were unwilling victims. And even if they had volunteered, how could they possibly pay for sin? They were just as guilty as everyone else. God waits till the whole ugly mess has been cleaned up. And then he ends the famine. As if to say, You can't do what needs to be done, David. You know what the problem is, but you can't solve it. God's grace comes here in spite of David's solution, not as a result of David's solution. That's important. God is gracious in spite of what David does, not as a result of what David does. After all the suffering, all the grief and the horror, has anything really been achieved? There's no real resolution. It's so unsatisfactory. And at this point, we can say, thank you, Lord, that I live in New Testament time. But if we're going to see what exactly has changed since Old Testament times, we have to look briefly at verses 15 to 22. These verses show us a protected king. They describe various battles between Israel and Israel's arch enemy, the Philistines. I say they describe various battles, but that's stretching it a bit. What we get here is the barest summary of these battles. The only point that's emphasized is how all of this relates to David himself. Look again at verse 15. Once there was a battle between the Philistines and Israel. David went down with his men to fight against the Philistines, and he became exhausted. And Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of Rapha, whose bronze spearhead weighed 300 shekels and who was armed with a new sword, said he would kill David. But Abishai, son of Zeruiah, came to David's rescue. He struck the Philistine down and killed him. 
Then David's men swore to him, saying, Never again will you go out with us to battle, so that the lamp of Israel will not be extinguished. Verse 15 says David became exhausted. That doesn't necessarily mean he was getting older when this happened. The point is, this incident showed David's limitations. Yes, he's a strong and skillful warrior, but he gets tired like everyone else. Put David in a long, fierce battle, and he's vulnerable like everyone else. But his men realize there is one sense in which David is not like everyone else. David is God's anointed king. David is God's Messiah. David is so important to Israel, they call him, in verse 17, the lamp of Israel. That is an amazing thing to say about one man. If you die, David, Israel would fall into darkness. We couldn't find our way without you. These men believe Israel's future hinges on one man. And so this close shave on the battlefield brings them to a decision. You are too important to put in harm's way. Never again will you go out with us to battle. Israel believed the success of God's kingdom means protecting God's king at all costs. And the rest of chapter 21 bears that out. Apparently, those battles were fought without David. I said at the beginning, this epilogue was carefully put together. And it is no accident this little section follows on from verses 1 to 14. So let's try and see how all of it fits together. We started with the problem of God's wrath. That's always a problem for sinful men and women. Then we saw an ugly, unsatisfactory solution. Seven men died for the people, but they were just as guilty as the people they died for. And then we saw God's Messiah being protected. The lamp of Israel must not be extinguished. So how have things changed since Jesus came? Well, Jesus came to a world under God's wrath. The New Testament does not minimize that problem. It assures us that problem has not gone away. And the New Testament shows us another ugly solution to the problem. Equally ugly to what we've seen this morning from the Old Testament. But the difference is, this time, that ugly solution was also a satisfactory solution. During his ministry, Jesus proclaimed himself to be not just the light of Israel, but the light of the world. And his disciples thought just like David's man thought. If Jesus is the light of the world, 
He needs to be protected at all costs. No harm must come to him. And so when Jesus told his disciples he was going to die, what happened? Matthew tells us Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. The light of the world must not be extinguished. But in fact, God's Messiah came to die. Jesus was the only human being not under God's wrath. But he gave himself up to death on a cross. And as Jesus hung there, wave after wave of God's wrath poured over him until it was done. It was horribly ugly, but it was satisfactory. It was what the Father and Son had planned all along. The New Testament tells us, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus didn't die because he was weak. He didn't die because he had no protection. David, Jesus had a greater army than David. He said, I could call on 12 legions of angels to protect me. Jesus had the armies of heaven available for his protection. But he gave up that protection. In love, he walked alone to a hill outside Jerusalem. And in love, the Father let him go. He didn't step in to protect his son. He allowed his son to be handed over, killed, and exposed on that hilltop. You and I could never turn away the wrath of God. And in his holiness, God could not ignore our sin forever. But in love, God paid the price to turn away his own wrath. And so today, you and I can look up from 2 Samuel 21 and we can say, Thank you, Lord, that I live in New Testament times. Thank you that Jesus has done what only Jesus could do. That is how we apply this passage. There's nothing specific here for us to go away and do today. We apply this passage by praising Jesus and living for Jesus' glory in all that we do. And if you have never bowed to him as your Lord, can you see what he's done for you? Can you see he is the only way to be saved from God's wrath? He's the only way to know and experience the love of God. Come to him and he will solve your greatest problem. 
We're going to come together and praise him together as we sing, And can it be that I should gaze